As I was preparing to to speak today, again, Jeff said he asked me like a month ago, and so I started thinking about it a few weeks ago and, you know, trying to get ready, get my thoughts together. And uh, and I was I was preparing something on the Beatitudes. I was like, yes, going to speak on the Beatitudes. And I'd gone through my pictures of Israel, and I, was, I picked out the picture of us all being on that hill. And, you know, I was super excited about that. And, and then this week, as I was working on it, uh, every time I was trying to figure out what to do on the next slide, I, I felt like I was pushing water uphill with a rake. Does anybody, do you know, what I, you know, so I was just like, boy, this just really doesn't feel like it's working. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it's coming. And I could probably force it to come together, but it doesn't feel like it's coming together. Um, and it was either on Wednesday or Thursday, um, I was, feeling a little frustrated that it didn't feel like it was coming together. And I was just like, Lord, is there something else that you're doing? I don't know why I didn't ask that earlier, but I didn't. And uh, so I was like, Lord, is there something else that you're doing? And he said, just, I want you to talk about how much I love them. And I realized in the wake of two tragedies back to back, that's where we start to shake, isn't it? Whenever there's tragedies that happen, whether it's nationally, whether it's internationally, whether it's just things that we didn't expect that hit our home, we start to shake in foundations, right? And that's when we have the opportunity to press back into his arms, press back into what we know about him, or to start to question everything, right? And so I thought, oh, I guess, God, that makes a lot of sense, that in the wake of two tragedies that we would center on, you're still good. Right? You're still on the throne. You love us. We're okay. And be able to press in to who he is and who he wants to be to us. So um, as I was thinking about this, this is what I heard from the Lord that morning. This is not a time to let go of what we believe, but to shore up our foundations. And so this morning, as you might have guessed, I'm going to talk to you again about the Father heart of God. Because I think it's the thing that we live out of if we really understand who he is and how loved we are. And we're not shakable in that place. Yeah? I think as Christians, as believers, we are the ones that have hope to hand out right? We're the ones that actually can meet people in trauma and meet them with love if we have it within ourselves. But scripture also says that we love because he first loved us. So if we don't actually know how loved we are, we don't have much to give away, right? But if we have his love, if we are filled with his love, if we live from being loved, then we have something tangible that we can hand away to people that are afraid. Right? To people that are desperate. I'm aware of uh, little ears in the room, and so I'm going to tell you uh, my testimony probably a little different than you've heard it before, if you've heard it uh, in reference to little ears. Does that make sense? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So I'm going to do my best to do that. I have to sort of, I have to think more when you have to use different language. Thinking on a Sunday. 
it's tough. It's tough. It's all right. I've had three coffees, so we should be good to go. <laughs> be warned, right? Um, yeah. So I, uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada. And so I'm not from here. That's why I don't have your dulcet five. <laughs> the southern five. Um, uh, so I was born in Toronto, Canada at a very young age. And thanks for still laughing, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, I was born into a family that was fairly well off financially, so we didn't really have uh, concerns about, you know, housing or food or things like that. Uh, but both of my parents were alcoholic. Both of them were abusive. And so I grew up in a very, um, a very scary environment. The thing I remember most about being a child was being afraid all the time. Um, my mom installed a lock on my closet door so that I could hide in my closet when things got worse. And so it was, it was just, it was, wasn't the best. I remember, um, as a kid, both my parents had favorites. And I wasn't either parent's favorite, so I didn't even have a parent that I could go to when things went horribly bad because I was always the one that wasn't wanted in the room. And in the midst of all this stuff that was going on, I just sort of withdrew into myself. Uh, I remember uh, around the time that I was seven, on Sundays, we I would see cars. It was mostly Sundays that we saw it happen that... People would drive through our neighborhood because there were all these big houses, you know, and they'd drive through and they'd look at the houses and sometimes they'd stop in front of our house and then they'd, they'd keep going. And I remember saying to my mom, what are they doing? Like, is our house for sale? You know, why are, why are they stopping? And she said, oh, they're probably just wondering what it's like to live here. And I remember thinking, oh, if they knew they wouldn't stop. When I was, uh, shortly after that, when, again, when I was seven, uh, there was an incident where I just decided that I needed to make a permanent decision. And so, uh, I, I chose to make a permanent decision that didn't work. And, um, this is where, again, I'm trying to be conscious of my language. And when I got out of the hospital, nothing really changed. Um, I ended up trying to make that choice again uh, when I was 13. And again, um, circumstances stopped that from being successful. I was afraid all of the time. I was angry all of the time. I was making excuses for bruises and things all of the time. And I was pretty done. Around this time, I, um, I was at the cottage with my grandparents. My grandparents were believers. And uh, they, uh, they were like my only safe place. I knew if I was at the cottage for two days, I was safe. My dad didn't go to the cottage. And my mom didn't yell at the cottage because you didn't do that at the cottage. And so for two days, it was wonderful. And then on Sunday, I had to go home. And at this particular time in my life, because my older siblings were 12 years older, neither of them were at home. It was just me and my, my brother that's a year older than I am. And he was the favorite of both parents. And so it was really safe for him. It was really, really unsafe for me. And 
So it's Sunday night, we're getting ready to go home, and I start to have an asthma attack. Now, I had very severe asthma anyway. I always had a machine with me and medication and all that kind of stuff. But if uh, asthma is also emotionally triggered. So I had a whole bunch of, like, actual allergies, you know, mites and dust and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's emotionally triggered as well. And so pretty much every Sunday night, we'd pack up the car, and and I would start to have trouble breathing, and I would end up on a machine. And often... It would get past where I could manage it, and we'd go into the hospital, uh, the local hospital, and when they got me breathing again, we would get in the car and we would drive home. But this one particular Sunday, my grandmother came and she sat down in front of me and she said, what is happening in your house that you don't want to go home? And so I told her. I was... 13, I had tried to fix it on my own. It wasn't working. And I thought, I need help. And in those days, you didn't tell people. You just, did, it wasn't like a talked about thing. We're talking, you know, I guess early 80s. Let's not date me right now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, 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 you, didn't, you didn't talk about it. And, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And so I, I told her, and I'm, again, I'm not going to go into specifics for obvious reasons, but um, she, she did her very best counselor's face. I mean, she's hearing this horrible news, and she's just smiling at me and, you know, good open eye. Christine, you would have been very proud of her, very good eye contact. And I did wonder at some point, like, do grandparents get training in this sort of like, hmm, yes, okay, and keep going. But... Uh, at the end, she said, you stay right here. I'm going to go talk to your mother. Well, I was hooked up to a machine, so I was going to stay right there. And, and, uh, and she went and talked to my mom, and she went down, and she said, that child's not going home with you. She said, you go home, you sort out your marriage, but she's not going home with you. And so, you know, it was safe for my brother to go home, so he went home, and they started the process of uh, getting separated. Now, my parents... I don't ever remember them sharing a room. They lived at opposite ends of an 8,600-square-foot house. So they weren't tight. You know what I'm saying? They were as far apart as they could be. Um, but now it was like a thing that had to happen. And so they're selling the house, and we're sold in the recession, which didn't go over that well, lost a whole bunch of money. And, and everybody was mad at me because I was the 13-year-old that told so my siblings were mad, everybody was mad, and I stayed with grandma and grandpa for a few months, and then my mom said, okay, we've, I have a new house that we're moving to, your dad's moved into this townhouse, you never have to see him again, I need you to come down, I need you to look through the old house, because the company was coming to take away all the extra things, because we just, we, we had too much stuff. And so she said, you know, you need to come and look at, and just make sure we have anything that's super important, and I was like, okay, and I said, but I don't have to see him. No, you don't. Okay, good. So we come, we arrive at the house and walk in the kitchen and my dad is sitting right there at the kitchen table. And I'm like, wow. So he looks at me and he says, how can you do this to me? I love you. Because it's the 13-year-old's fault. And I said, words I wish I hadn't, but I said, we have a really funny way of showing it. And you need to know that I hate you, and I hope you die. And I left. You could say I had a few issues, like just one or two. 
you know, uh, I was very, very angry and very, very afraid. Um, so after that, for about the next year and a half, my dad sent presents because that's what we did in my family, right? So if you screwed up really bad, you just bought a bigger present and everybody's supposed to be okay. And so uh, my dad sent presents and uh, I took the time to smash them to tiny little pieces, no matter how badly I wanted them, and mail them back. I know, Canada Post made an enormous amount of money off of my issues. Um, He sent me flowers twice. The first time I waited for them to die and then mailed them back. The second time I realized that took a really long time. And so the second time I cut them up and poured Drano over them, which has a very interesting effect, and mailed them back. Again, I was very angry. Check. Um, In the midst of all of this, I end up going to a youth retreat with my cousin, the Baptist evangelist, who had been trying to win me to the Lord her whole life with very limited results. Well, let's say negative results uh, to her. And, but she never gave up and she kept, you know, trying to get me to come to every camp, you know, every kids camp and every youth camp. And I decided to go to camp, uh, this retreat weekend only because it was my sister's birthday and I was mad at her. And so I wanted to hurt her feelings. Thank you. Thank you. You're all like, I'm so glad my children are hearing this. Um, so I was like, you know, my cousin uh, calls and she's like, okay, don't hang up. You know, I know you're going to say no, but, and it's really last minute, but tomorrow there's a youth camp. And I was like, tomorrow's her birthday. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll come. I'll, I'll totally come, you know. And uh, so she's probably like, yay, breakthrough. And I'm just like, I don't even care. I just want to hurt my sister, you know. So, but I don't think God cared why I thought I was going, right? So I show up at this Baptist youth camp, and, uh, and, and I, I heard a message that I'd never heard before. And it was a really simple message. I heard for the first time in my whole life that God loves me. I didn't know that. I didn't know anybody loved me. And I remember sitting there and thinking, if that's true, then tell me where to sign. I mean, if somebody really loves me, I'm in. And I remember the guy that was speaking, he had a lot of energy. (laughs) Youth speakers. He he had a lot of energy. And uh, he kept talking and talking and talking. And I was like, dude, get to the end. Like, get to the end because I need to sign whatever we're signing up for here, you know? And uh, it took forever. And so eventually I just went, I got to do this now. So I, I, I pushed past all the people in the pews. But pews, by the way, were these like uh, wooden benches that were really long in case you don't know what they were. Um, I pushed past uh, everybody in the pews and I ran to the front and I just started crying. And he actually came down and led me to the Lord so he could finish the message. And I don't remember why, really, but for some reason, at the very end, I remember marching back and forth across the back of the room. I didn't know that we didn't do that as Baptists, but I did. I don't, I don't remember why, though. But I, it, it was like this incredible encounter. All of a sudden, I realized I'm loved. But it became kind of like fire insurance. I just knew I wasn't going to hell anymore. But I had no idea that God also wanted to take all of my fear 
and all of my pain and all of my loneliness and all the places where I was just like desperate. I didn't know he could answer any of those things, right? So I just dressed nicely on Sundays and went to church and silently suffered throughout the rest of the week with all of my pain. But I was hearing good things and I was hearing about things like forgiveness and, you know, I was, it was getting here, it wasn't getting here. Do you know what I'm saying? And I remember um, this one week I uh, went to church and the pastor spoke on forgiveness and at the end he did like this call like, hey, if there's anyone here, you know, if, if, if you feel like you might need to forgive someone and I was like, no. Like, I didn't have a question whether I needed to forgive my dad, but I didn't understand forgiveness because I thought forgiveness meant what he did to me was okay. So no, I won't. And then on Wednesday, I went to youth group. It was supposed to be pizza and fun night at youth group, much like summer fun nights. And uh, I went and, and the pastor said, you know, hey, I know we were supposed to do like fun stuff. So we're still going to have pizza because you came hungry. But I felt like we were supposed to talk about something and said tonight we'll do like fun things next week. And I'm like, oh, interesting. That's unusual. Uh, so we go into this room and um, he says, yeah, I felt like we need to talk about forgiveness. And I was like, do you though? So great. Um, and at the end, I remember he tried to get us to pair up and, and pray for with each other. And I, I took all my stuff and left. I was so mad. And uh, Friday morning, I was driving to swim practice with my mom and it's like 5.15 in the morning, we're driving in and she's listening to news radio and this report comes on about the power of forgiveness. And I nearly put my hand through the radio trying to get it off, get it off, off. And then the following Sunday, same exact church, same exact pastor, he says, you know, I know we spoke about forgiveness last week, but we're going to speak about forgiveness again. And I'm like, like, I totally know God is after me. Guys, this is your little warning, by the way. If you keep hearing the same message over and over and over again, God's trying to get your attention. The fastest route to actually getting that sorted out is to say yes and start to deal with whatever he wants to talk to you about. I hadn't figured that out yet. Anyway, my answer was still no. And a few months later, uh, my dad and my sister had spent some time together on a Friday. And my dad had said, I want Allison to let me back in her life. That's what the A is for. And uh, now you're all guessing the J. I know, I know how this goes. Um, use your prophetic gift. So, uh, Jeff, <laughs> no, by close. Um, so I, uh, my, my sister said to my dad, you need to stop drinking. And my dad had been drinking an excessive amount of alcohol for many, many years. And he did. He just stopped cold turkey, uh, without any kind of help with that. And two days later, he had a massive seizure and fell down uh, concrete stairs into the bottom of a parking garage. It was 92 concrete stairs. And somebody found him at the bottom unconscious and he'd uh, bit his tongue in half and split his head open and, and broken a bunch of ribs. And so it's Monday and 
I'm in an exam and I get pulled out of this exam and taken to the hospital against my will because I don't want to see my dad and uh, I don't know that he's there because of me. Like, I don't know what ha- I have anything to do with this scenario. Uh, but they're telling us he's not going to make it. And uh, I remember when we were at the school, my mom said, you need to come and say goodbye. And I said in front of all these students, I said, goodbye a year and a half ago, let him die. I mean, I still was super angry. I, you know, all the stuff still there, just under the surface, just waiting. And uh, anyway, we get there, and I, uh, the doctor ends up coming out and saying, like, we'll let one of you come in, and then after he's in the ICU and we have him, like, set up, they'll do a schedule, and, and uh, you can each come in. And my brother and sister that were his favorites started literally punching each other in the emergency waiting room, just trying to discover who was the real favorite, which they were legitimately his favorites, but uh, it, was, it was chaos, and the doctor basically turned to my mom and said, just tell me who's here. And uh, my mom said, everybody except for Scott. And so he went back in and he came back out and said, he says he wants to see Allison. And I did not want to see him. I'd always been terrified of him. And so I was like, I don't want to go. And my mom started screaming at me. So I was like, I'll go. So I went in with the doctor. And I know I must have been visibly shaking because this ER doctor who could have probably should have been doing a million things, said, I'll stand right here. I'll be right here. And I was like, okay. And I went around behind this curtain and I saw my dad and they had bandaged up his head and sewn his tongue back together and, you know, all those good things. He looked white as a sheet. And he turned to me and he said, one more chance. And I said, no. So he opened up his hand and he cried and I'd never seen him cry. And he said, one more chance. And I said, I can't do that. And I walked out. So the doctor was still standing there and he looked at me and he said, listen, your father's not going to live through the night. Why don't you just let him die thinking he has one more chance? So I went in, and I looked at him with absolutely no kindness, and I said, you have one more chance. And I took off. Well, my father made a miraculous recovery. <laughs> yeah, the bleeding just stopped overnight, and all the doctors were like, we have no idea what happened. And I'm like, I know what happened. Like, I knew totally God had just tricked me into forgiving my dad, you know. And I was like, oh. Anyway, but a week later, he got out of the hospital, and he checked himself into a drug and alcohol rehab center. And he told all of his clients, I'm getting my family back. And if you can't wait for your building, he was an architect, uh, I will send you to another architect that can help you. And he started working on him. And he got out, and he wanted his one more chance. And I'll be honest, it was pretty scary. Um, I, I think you need to know if you're going to re-enter into relationship with anybody who's really hurt you, that the Lord is actually leading you that way and have voices that are speaking into your life in that process, please. Okay. Uh, but I remember writing this horrible letter to my dad that basically, uh, said, Hey, if you ever touch me again, I'll charge you for everything you ever did. You ever yell at me again. I'll charge. I mean, it was a horrible letter. And I had a place for him to sign it. And he, he just signed it. No problem. Got it. 
what that started for us was actually four of some of the best years of my life. I've had lots of great years since then, but four amazing, amazing years where uh, my dad literally became like my best friend. Uh, a few months after this happened, uh, there was a stabbing incident with my mom, and so I ended up moving in with my dad. And um, so we we just we did everything together. He was uh, an Olympic swimmer, and I was swimming. Uh, he was swimming in the Masters. We had matching outfits. We would go to each other's meets. We had a little noise that we would make. I won't make it because it would hurt your ears. But we we both competed in breaststroke, and so we, there was this noise we made when the when person's head came up. And so I knew Dad was tracking me up and down the pool. And he would come with me on on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. We would go to the local pool, and he would walk up and down, and he'd help me figure out like where am I getting slowed down and how do I refine this flip turn and all that kind of thing. We had so much fun. We did all kinds of crazy stuff together and we don't have time for all these stories, but God so completely restored our relationship that my best friend at high school referred to my dad as my other best friend because she knew if I was canceling with her, it was because I was going out with dad. And it was amazing. And then when I was 19, my father chose the same very permanent decision that I had tried to choose as a child, only it worked for him. And I was devastated. And I'd been in church for four years, but I didn't know how to pray, and I didn't know how to hear God's voice, and I didn't know where to read in the Bible to make me feel any better. And my whole world came crashing down and all I could think of was I'm going to make sure it works this time I became obsessed with it and in that condition a friend of mine who I was going to church with a church where I felt like I was pretty invisible picked me up on a Sunday morning and hijacked me and brought me to a church that I didn't want to go to where they knew who the father was. And uh, I remember the first service that we were there, I was, uh, we, we sat near the very back, even though there was, I mean, it, it, this sanctuary sat about 250 people, something like that. And uh, there's only 60 people that were part of the congregation. And so there was plenty of seats, but I was like there under protest. I was super mad at my friend that we were there. She didn't listen to me. She wouldn't stop driving. She wouldn't take me back home, you know. And even as we drove in after I'd given her the silent treatment all the way there, because I was mad, and that's the mature thing to do, by the way. She said, AJ, if you don't like it, we'll never go back. And I was like, fine. So I like went in because I'm now going to choose not to like it, right? And I'm sitting at the back, and it was either the first or second song, but they started singing this old vineyard song called, Father, I Want You to Hold Me. And I heard this horrible noise. I mean, horrific, horrific wailing kind of noise. And this is going to sound a little unhinged, but it probably took me about 30 seconds to realize I was making the horrible noise. Like, it was me. It was 19 years of pain that was now uncapped because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in that place. And I just started wailing. I mean, horrific noise. And I couldn't get it together. So in my mind, I'm like, stop it, stop it. 
Because my whole life, I'd been able to shut down my feelings, but I couldn't, right? So I'm literally in the back, losing my mind, and everybody's nicely singing this song. So it kind of looks like this. They're like, Father, I want you to hold me. I want to. I mean, everybody in the entire place looked at me at least once. And I, I was like, I know, I know, you know, like inside, what is happening? I wailed all the way through worship and in spectacular fashion. In fact, I didn't realize worship was over because I couldn't hear anything. And so Sandy, my, free, my sweet friend Sandy, who, by the way, is the shyest person I have yet to ever meet, is 18 shades of red because she brought the psycho in the back, right? And she, like, pulls me down into my chair like, they all sat now, you know? And uh, John gets up and speaks about I don't know what because I couldn't hear him. And at the very end, John finishes his message and he says, you know, there's somebody here. that needs to know that the father loves them. And I, in my head, I was like, how did he know? I'm like, you all are like, good guess, John. Could it be the chick losing it in the back? But uh, and I seriously don't know what happened because in my mind, I was not going up there, but my body was like, uh-uh, we're going, you know? And I walked up and John opened up his arms and I walked into his arms and cried all over that man for about 40 minutes. Snot, tears, the whole thing. He shut down the service, holding me up. And at the end, he introduced me to a couple of dads in the church. And I started this process of being loved back to life. And God used the arms of safe dads to be part of that. But I end up in this father heart church. And it's, it was an amazing environment to get healed in and to be loved back to life in. See, I had seen verses like this verse, which is so familiar to all of us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'd seen that and missed the fact that it was about a father who loved the world so much that he gave his son. That's an incomprehensible love. Right? As a parent, I can't fathom giving up your own child. But he did that, and he never knew if we'd actually love him in return. But he loved us that much. See, here I am, and even a year and a half later in this Father Heart Church, I still don't get the message of the Father Heart of God. And I promise you, they talked about it every Sunday. Every Sunday, somebody was talking about the Father Heart, and I was like, oh, come on. Talk about something else. Let's talk about hellfire and brimstone. Let's talk about anything but the Father's love, please. Because my heart didn't have a landing place for that. I didn't know how to process that. Does that make sense? And, and this is how it works. All right, we're all this little green, guys. So turn to your neighbor and say, you look good in green. So this is me, this is you, and whether we realize it or not, we do this amazing little process. We learn, as we go through life, how to interact, right? So this is me, and I, 
I know how to interact with a father. I know how to interact with authority. I've, I learned that growing up. And so we all do it differently because we all learned a different lesson. Yeah? And then I'm going through life and some end up in this Father Heart Church where all these people are telling me, hey, there's this great big God and he loves you so much. He wants to be a father to you. He wants to, and in my head, I was like, father? He's a father God? Oh, okay. I know how to interact with a father. And we actually place on God all of our misconceptions that we've learned through life, through interactions with different authority figures. And we see only a portion of who he actually is. And then we even read the Bible with those lenses on, right? So if God is angry because dad was angry, then all we see as we read through is all the places where the Lord had to deal with Israel's sin. And we're like, see, angry, told you. I remember one Sunday morning, I, I go to church and um, there's a guest speaker in and he says he's speaking out of Leviticus, I think. And I was like, yes. There is no way you father heart out of Leviticus, right? You know, it's not going to happen. I'm safe. No father heart message today, you know? Somehow this guy did it, you know? Somehow he circled around to the father heart. And at the end, I can't remember. He was, it was like a healing thing. I can't remember whether he had people stand up because they, you know, I don't know, had three legs or uh, whatever he had them stand up for. I was like, I stood because I was like, I need, I need something, and I don't know what everybody else prayed for, but I stood up and was just like, Father, everybody's so excited about you being a dad or you being a father, and I don't get it. Would you help me to get it? That was it. That was my very suave prayer. And that night I had a dream about the Father's house, and I won't go into the dream, but at the end of the dream, I was sitting in the Father's lap, and he was laughing, and I was laughing. And when I woke up out of the dream that first time, I had the same dream seven times, exactly the same. But when I woke up that first time out of the dream, I could hear God audibly laughing in my bedroom for about 10 seconds. And I was like, oh, you're real. And you're happy? I mean, it was just like, what's going on? And the only verse that went through my head at that moment was this one. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. For him to be the way, there must be a destination. Right? Some translations say, I am the road. For him to be the road, there must be a, a, a destination. He's the way to what? He's the way to who? Jesus came that we would know the Father. That was the plan. That was the rescue plan the whole time. And the most strategic plan of the enemy to date has been to take out the dads. If he can take out the dads, he removes our ability to relate in a healthy way to a God who is Father. And one of the things I'm so excited about is we are seeing a restoration of dads. And as we see that, we will see a restoration of an understanding in the church that hasn't existed yet. 
John 1, sorry, 1 John 4, verse 16 says, For we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That word love there is the word agape. It means the unconditional love of God. It's the same word uh, that in John 17, 23 is used to describe how much God, Father God, loves Jesus. He loves us without condition. Well, we get that here, but do we live like that here? Right? So this verse says, for we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That unconditional love. It says you're going to know it where first? And know, Right? And then you're going to believe. You believe from your heart, right? And it's saying, know and believe. You're in a process of moving all of that great information from your head to your heart. Now, in the South, I feel like we have lots of head, right? We've got a lot of information, but we need it to move to our hearts. And you know that something has moved to your heart when you live like it's true, so when the winds come, when the tragedies happen, when the bills show up that we didn't expect, when we get a diagnosis we didn't expect, when all the different things happen, if we know that we are loved, we, we respond in a completely different way than responding like we're completely alone in the midst of it. Does that make sense? The next dynamic that I realized that also happened for me, basically for the next two years after having that dream, every couple of days the Lord would drop one new verse in my heart and we'd spend days chewing over one little verse. And sometimes actually it was weeks, I'll be honest with you, on this same little verse until I felt like, oh, I think I might be getting a hold of it. And then he'd move on to the next verse. But I realized for me there was this dynamic happening where I really kind of thought that there was a good cop, bad cop scenario going on, right? So Jesus, good God, Father, bad God from the Old Testament who is very angry. You with me so far, right? So if I had a need, and again, it, it fits with my story, doesn't it? It fits with my scenario of a scary dad, uh, if I had a need, I would pray to Jesus and be like, Jesus, I need food or whatever the thing is. And in my scenario, in my head, it was like Jesus goes, all right, I got you. I hear you. Hang tight. I'm going to see if I can get you some food. And then he turns around and he goes, I, I know she screws up all the time, but could we feed her? Well... I mean, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's like this whole thing. I know, it's, it's messed up. I realized that I thought Jesus and the Father were really kind of different personalities. Different people. But it doesn't work because they're one. Right? What I know to be true of Jesus that he is good, that he is kind, that he likes parties. His first miracle, hello, was a party, right? That he loves kids. All the things that we know 
about Jesus, we know about the Father because Jesus represents the Father fully. Yeah? And then I encountered this verse. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus and the Father are one. What we know about Jesus, we know about the Father. He is for us and not against us. And then add to that in John 16, 26 and 27, it says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. Jesus isn't standing in the way trying to make sure God doesn't smite me. The Father himself loves me. The Father himself loves you. It's all throughout scripture. There's so many verses. Again, John 17, 23, we said that earlier, he loves us as much as he loves Jesus. James 1, verse 17, every good, good gift comes from him, comes from the Father. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Wait, that's the Old Testament. He is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is for us and not against us. The word father in the Old Testament is used uh, about 15 times to describe God. In reference to God, it's used only 15 times, father. In the New Testament, the word father is used in reference to God 245 times. Why did Jesus come to restore us to the Father? So that we would know who he is. So that we would know how loved we are. In Jesus' last conversation with disciples before uh, going to the cross, in John 14 through John 17... 50 times Jesus references the Father in that last conversation. He knows their world is about to be turned upside down, and he wants to make sure they know who the Father is. It's what's going to matter. It's what's going to make a difference in how they navigate what's coming. It's the same for us. Again, if we know we are loved, then we just sort of bend when the wind blows and we recover. Yeah? We don't snap. Let's look at the story of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke 15, starting at verse 11. I am, of course, reading from the NASB because Jesus preached from this version. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right. I'm not going to ask you the question because... Most of you know the answer by now. Should I ask the question anyway? Okay, let's just try it. How many sons are there in the prodigal son story? Come on, show me your fingers. Yeah, see, you're all A students here. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> There's three sons in the prodigal son story, right? Right? There's the younger son. There's the older son. And then there's the son that's telling the story. See, if you have a red letter Bible, this story's in red. 
Because this is Jesus saying, I want you to know what my father is really like. That's why it's such an amazing story. All right, prodigal son story. Let's start at verse 11. It says, and he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Let's stop there for a second. So the younger son, basically, it sounds very nice when you read it in the Bible, but basically what he's saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money. Right? And the father, instead of saying, go to your room and wait till your mother gets home, (laughs) says, okay, son here you go, and gives it to him. So big slap in the face. I wish you were dead. I want my money. And then he goes on a journey to a distant country. So leaving the country of your father's birth, another big slap in the face. Are you with me so far? And off he goes. And then we see what happens. It says, verse 14, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. So, quick question. For a young Jewish boy to be feeding pigs as a job, good job, bad job? Bad job, right? And on top of that, he's looking at what pigs eat, and he is thinking... Yummy. How many of you have ever seen what pigs eat? Anybody? Right? Okay. You always get more hands for this one in Tennessee than anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, uh, it looks kind of like mud with chunks. Right? He looks fork or spoon, fork or spoon. I don't know. Um, it, 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 it doesn't look appetizing. Let's say that. Okay? And he's looking at it and thinking it's a buffet. Is he in a bad place? Yeah, he's in a bad place. Also, I don't know if you know this, but pigs smell. Did you know that? They stink. You can smell pig farms from like way far away. And if it happens to be a really hot day, miles. All right. So he's in a bad place. He's hungry. He's looking at what pigs are eating and he's thinking it's the, uh, what's the corral place? The buffet corral place? Golden corral. That's not a good example, right? Because nobody wants that. Uh, He's thinking it's something yummy, friends. And, and so we pick up with him at verse 17. It says, but when he came to his senses. I love that verse. It's what I pray for anybody who walks away. Lord, bring them to their senses. Because we've all come to our senses. That's why you're sitting here, right? When he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Just as a side note, even his hired men have more than enough bread, but sons actually have an inheritance. They get something even more than that. Okay. Says, I will go and I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Quick question. Is he actually talking to his dad right now? No? No, he isn't, right? He's practicing his speech. He's practicing his apology speech. Now, 
How many of you have ever messed up so badly that you practiced your apology speech? Where are you at? Yeah. How many of you used a mirror? Anyone? You got to make sure your face lines up. I always used a mirror. Make sure I look really... All right, he's practiced, he's ready to go, and then it says, so he got up. He came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Guys, for the father to see him while he's still a long way off, he must have been looking. He must have been waiting and longing for the moment when the son would return. And now I want to do a very brave thing to do on a Sunday morning. I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. And we're going to just, I want you to picture what's happening in this scene. So here's the son. He's walking from one Middle Eastern country to another. He's probably fairly dehydrated because he probably didn't have a camel back. And he probably smells pretty bad. We know that because he hung out with pigs. But also deodorant you know, didn't exist. Let's, are, have you got the visual? If, don't you wish the Bible was scratch and sniff sometimes? Anyway. Never mind. We should patent that. Okay. So he's walking from one Middle Eastern country to another, and he comes up over the hill, and he can just see his dad's house. Now, I want you to see the dad. The dad sees him coming, and his response is he overwhelms with compassion, and he starts to run towards his son. Now, Jesus is painting a very specific picture here. Dignified men did not run, possibly because they were wearing dresses, but they didn't run. And he's painting a picture of the father sees the son and he begins to sprint towards him, sandals and dress flailing as he runs towards his son. And it says... He runs up to him, and I want you to pause him about a foot apart. Have you got them paused a foot apart in your mind's eye? Do you think the father can smell him at this point? Yeah? Well, what you'll see is what happens next is the father pulls out this contract out of his robe. And he says, you know, here's a repayment plan for all of the money that you took. You can open your eyes now. You did very well. Congratulate yourselves for staying awake. Uh... Here's a repayment plan for all of the thing, you know, money, and, and here's how you're going to earn your way back into my affection. Does it say that? No, it doesn't. It says he falls on his neck and he kisses him. Right off the very bat. Like, that's probably not the way that expression goes. Right off the very bat. Is that a, an expression? Never mind. Right, right in that moment... He actually says, you are mine by covenant, by kissing him. Can he smell him? Yeah. Did he, when he wrapped his arms around him, did he probably get covered in filth? Probably. Did he care? No. And he didn't present him with a contract saying, you have to do everything perfect from now on. Well, hang on a second. How come when we make a mistake... We think there's got to be some kind of master repayment plan before I'm back in God's graces. Or there's probably some things I need to do to earn my way back into love that is a free gift. Right? I love what happens. It says in verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, did the son even get to finish his actual speech? No. The picture I have is sort of like the father going, oh, sweetheart. You don't get it, do you? Right? What's the expression we use here in the South? Bless your heart. Oh, bless your heart. You think this is about your performance. You don't realize this is about my love. So he doesn't even finish his speech. And the father turns to his slaves and he says, quickly, that means fast, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. See, the father doesn't answer with words. He answers with action, doesn't he? He's like, oh, hang on a second. Let me, let me show you how I actually feel. He brings out the best robe and puts it on him. Who do you think the best robe probably belonged to? Probably the dad, right? What does he do by putting his robe on his son? He covers him so that as the son returns to the house, nobody sees the shame with which he walked in. The father covers his shame. He gives him a ring. Oh, we like rings. But this is more significant than that. If you had the dad's ring, you could go into the neighboring town and say, I want one of those, one of those, one of those, one of those. And this is who my dad is. And they charge it all to dad. Here's a kid who's messed up spectacularly with finances. And the father's in saying, now do Dave Ramsey. And once you're finished that course, we'll try again with a small allowance. Now, I love Dave Ramsey. Do Dave Ramsey. Hear me. It's great. Okay. But he's not saying that. He's saying, here you go, son. Try again. I trust you. Well, do, do we think that's what happens when we make a mistake with our finances? Do we think that he wants to come in and meet us? Or do we go, oh, I should have known better. I should have. We should on ourselves. And then he gives him sandals, very specific message. Slaves went barefoot, sons wore sandals. He said, you're my son, here's my robe. You're my son, here's my ring. You're my son, here's some shoes. And they begin to celebrate. And you guys all know there's an older brother. We're not going to go into that. But here's the thing. Neither the younger brother nor the older brother actually knew who the father was. We know that because the younger son could leave. And the older son lived like a slave in his father's household. He says it, right? All these years I've been serving you. He says, I'm living like a slave. We can have been in the church our whole lives and still not know who the father is and still not know how loved we are. Alan and I have three gorgeous children. This is a really old picture. Um, they're not in here so that I can't get in trouble later for showing the picture. I'm just making sure. Nope. Uh, and uh, we, we love them. And we had kids much the same reason uh, all the rest of y'all did. Uh, where are my parents at? So you guys probably did it for the same reason we did. We knew later on in life we would want somebody to unload the dishwasher and mow the lawn. And so we thought we need to get on that now, you know, so that they're going to be. And kids are like no work at all. You know, you don't have to do anything for them. They just grow up, and then they do stuff for you, you know, and that was the goal. No, of course not. Nor are you in the kingdom because the Father has something for you to do. You are here because he loves you, 
because he wanted you, because he desires relationship with you. See, if we take any of the weird sort of ideas that we have about God and we put them in the context of he is the best father ever, which is what scripture says, they don't work. He's not looking for you to perform. He really isn't. Uh, Alan and I, uh, when the kids were little, you know, we would, um, we, you know, just this was just a helpful way for us to parent. We, we would, in the morning, we would change the baby's diaper and we would have a discussion with the child. We've just taken care of that horrible mess you made. Thank you. And uh, run along and don't be dirty. And then later, uh, if they, you know, messed up their diapers, we would say, now sit in it and realize you shouldn't have done that. We, I already took care of this for you. And now here you, you've done it again. No, of course we didn't parent like that. You called child services, right? Neither does the father go, well, I have to help you with this again. He says, come on, let's clean this up. Right? He's not looking at you and comparing you to the person next to you, even if they got saved on the exact same day and you should be further. All the things that we believe are going on, they're not happening. He loves you. He's for you. There's no comparison in his kingdom, and he's so incredibly proud of you. You remember when that dove comes and lands on Jesus' shoulder when he gets baptized, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Had Jesus done any miracles at that point? None. He had done none. He hadn't started to do any of the things that he was born to do, but he's the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. The father is well pleased with you. Listen, if it was about your performance, so much of scripture would have to read so differently. And the world teaches us to perform, but the father isn't asking us to. I wonder if we could do this. I'm going to be brave one more time and ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you to ask the Father a question. And what you're listening for is that still, small voice that probably sounds a lot kinder than your own to answer your questions. But first, let me pray. Holy Spirit, Lord, we invite you to be in this room from the front to the back, from side to side. Lord, would you come and would you rest upon us? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Father, I ask that you would come and you would make yourself so known in this room. Lord, to whatever extent we already know you, Papa, would you come and step closer? to every place in our hearts where we don't quite know how loved we are. Lord, would you come and would you shower your love upon those parts? Father, we want to hear your voice. 
Our hearts long to know that we belong. Now, right where you are, with your eyes closed, I want you to just ask the Father. You're listening for that still, small voice. And just ask the Father, Father, what is one of your favorite things about me? And when you hear something, ask him why. Why that thing? Do you believe him? Why don't you tell him you believe him? I want you to ask him one last question. Father, if we could play a game, what game do you want to play with me? And ask him why. Father, I thank you that you desire to be known by us more than we even desire to hear you and to know you. You desire for that to be the truth. And so, Lord, I ask this week, Lord, that you would come and you would encounter us over and over again, Lord, as often as we choose to turn our faces towards you, that we would hear your voice, that we would feel your presence. Lord, I ask that you would take us deeper into your love for us. Lord, every place where our hearts still question, every place where we don't feel lovable, God, would you invade those parts with your truth and with your grace. Lord, we choose to live in your extravagant love. Yeah. And Lord, as we live in it, as we find our home in your love, Lord, would you be, uh, make us people that can easily hand away the love and the hope that you fill us with. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.